why don't we just ask the four in five Aboriginals who are succeeding and doing marvellously at life, uh, why don't we ask them what they're doing well? Sometimes people are interested only in power for power's sake. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Federal MPs are going to get a 4% pay rise. Their biggest in a decade in this climate. Well, hello and welcome to Parting Shots on ADH TV, the podcast with me, Fred Paul, and my co-host, Nick Cater. Now, Nick, can you tell me how you managed to break away from your onerous commitments today to make it into the studio to record the <laughs> podcast? That'll be giving secrets away, but it did involve a rather expensive commitment to a... Uh massage for my wife so well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> happy birthday to your gorgeous wife rebecca weiser uh, who's a re very regular guest here on adh tv so and uh, thank you for um for giving us your husband for a couple of hours to uh, <laughs> give us a wrap up of the week well it's been a hell of a week nick uh, one of the highlights for me was uh, queensland premier anastasia palaszczuk she disappeared on a holiday to the amalfi coast without so telling uh, some of her colleagues and then when she was tracked down by the state's newspaper the queensland newspaper the courier mail she told the journalist and the photographer to go away classic paparazzi and tabloid behavior but just very entertaining for everyone who doesn't very much like anastasia what do top, you reckon top work by the journo eh? i yeah. mean it's a tough assignment i know <laughs> i want you to go to the amalfi coast and <laughs> hang out for a bit but look that that's terrific and she is do you remember i mean do you remember when scott morrison took a, a well-earned break with his family in Hawaii, just a few days, and uh, he was he, he never lived that down, did he? I think that whole thing about being absent when the bushfires were, were, were began was stuck with him. Yeah, uh, never... interesting. The ABC isn't showing much interest in, in the Anastasia story, but they showed a lot of interest in Scott back in the day. Yeah, I mean, to, to be fair, I mean, her premiership seems just about over, and reports she's got health concerns. If that's so, obviously our deepest sympathy with her, but... You know, there is definitely a, a dual standard here, isn't it? And you can see it the way they they treat Albo. You know, so when, when he was asked to this week, uh, you know, what he thought of the decision to, or why they'd made the decision to not to allow Qatar Airways to open up extra flights to Australia, he just said, well, it... I didn't make the decision. It was made by the transport. <laughs> Can you imagine if Morrison had said that? Yeah. You yeah. know, the reputation he well, was I mean, getting. One of the themes, a... Yeah, exactly, Nick. And one of the things that possibly the theme of today's podcast is just how woeful Labor is at the moment and uh, how many opportunities the Liberal opposition are letting go through to the Keeper. So we'll get, we will get to Qatar later and I'll let you uh, have a spray about that one. And uh, also, um, you know, The Voice... Uh, which has turned into an absolute debacle for the government. We saw Prime Minister Anthony Albanese finally announce a date for the referendum, which is going to be October 14. Now, Nick, apparently, according to Google search data dug up by The Australian, Australians are showing, quote, sustained and strong interest in the topic. <laughs> Well, Nick, if they're anything like me, they are only showing interest in it because they can't believe what a load of rubbish it is and can't wait for it to be consigned to the dustbin of history because, frankly, there are more important issues at hand. But as if to signify how detached from reality current and former politicians are, former Liberal Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was photographed just a couple of days ago with Labor's Tanya Plibersek 
and Teal Princess from the eastern suburbs of uh, Sydney, Allegra Spender, campaigning for the yes vote. What did you make of that? Malcolm, no friends. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) if he's hanging around with those people, uh, you know, and it is sad really, but I don't think he has too many friends left in the Liberal Party. No, no. Maybe um, maybe he thinks the question is, will you be my friend? And the answer is yes. But do you know how sad this is, right? You know, as a former Prime Minister, you should be able to command great authority. If you come out with a pronouncement on some affair of the day, as Tony Abbott often does, you know, you command attention in the newspapers or TV and people listen. This man's just standing there standing on a street corner handing out leaflets to commuters <laughs> at King's Cross Station. He may as oh, well have a sandwich dear. board on, you know, saying vote yes or the end of the world is nigh. I wonder if he had that dreadful, I didn't see the pictures, did he have that dreadful leather jacket he had no, on? No, no. he, he had went a, on Q&A. No. <laughs> <laughs> he appeared on Q&A uh, with a leather jacket. That, oh. was, that was pretty ghastly, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, his fashion sense now extends to yes T-shirts. So, uh, mm. yeah, the. The, 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 his, his leather jacket period is over and uh, now he's just dabbling in the fringes of a, of a very pernicious debate and we will return to that mm. a bit later. But let's go to our, our, our first grab, actually, and this is still about uh, the voice, I've got to say. This is from Dave Pellow's show and I have to remind listeners, um, most of what we play here is from our, all, all the shows that appeared on ADH.TV this week. And uh, if you're interested, you can jump on our website or our app and listen uh, to more of it. Now, this is from a show called Church and State, as I said, hosted by Dave Pillow. Now, his show is it's, it's called Church and State, but it's, it's about much more than that. It's, it, he always um, focuses on current politics as much as he does about religion. Now, Dave made a very astute suggestion at the start of his show this week. Let's have a listen. Most Aboriginal Australians are not at all backward. They are well integrated and the very large majority of them have great success at uh, life, technology, health, uh, personal responsibility and socially acceptable behaviour in in a modern society. It's the one in five who experience a gap in outcomes that we need to say, well, what are the solutions for this? And, And somebody who I think lots of people are making really good observations that why don't we just ask the four and five Aboriginals who are succeeding and doing marvellously at life, uh, why don't we ask them what they're doing well and encourage the one in five to make similar decisions and and, uh, share that secret of success with them? Well, there's a voice worth listening to. (laughs) Indeed. No, this is is a... Uh, a well-known uh, error of uh, thinking where you take an average figure and you therefore say, well, everybody in that category must be at that level. Of course, that's not true. You know, you can get, uh, say, education standards, for instance. You know, if you've got one very thick kid in the class, uh, everybody else is going to look a lot less good at what they're doing than they are. But, you know, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, that's just why it's a question not of treating people as groups or classes or races but individuals and you judge them accordingly and whatever issues indigenous people have and there are many issues obviously of health and education you treat them one person at a time don't you yeah what struck me about dave's suggestion is it it 
It's actually a much better suggestion than the voice to parliament itself. Like the voice to parliament is meant to be a panel of supposedly, you know, carefully selected representatives. We know that's never going to be the case. But they go to Canberra and tell Canberra or our politicians what is needed on the ground in whatever disadvantaged Aboriginal communities we're talking about. Now, that's that's a very indirect way of going about it, but... If we are to agree that our, that our Aboriginal brothers and sisters are distinct from the rest of us, and I would argue until the cows come home that they're not, but all that aside, if they are different, then why not consult the ones who are successful and mm. tell, the, tell the ones who aren't, this is how you do it? And what you're doing by categorising everybody as a victim is is just you're diminishing them as human beings. It's what Jacinta Price says, you know, don't feel I'm sick of people feeling sorry for me. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and it, it it's disempowering once you, you make that judgment that, you know, Aboriginals by dint of being Aboriginal are going to be have poorer outcomes than other people. It's it's not true as Dave Pello points out in the majority of cases. And it's just not a very useful way to start going about <laughs> the debate, is it? It's well, just, and also as you've pointed out quite a few times, this constitutional change permanently marks Aboriginal people as victims. Mm. Mm. And that's, that, you know, that was, that, that can't possibly be the case. Surely there is an end point at which point they become equal, well, they're already equal to us if you ask me, but they, at some point this reconciliation process will be over and the voice will no longer be necessary because their expectations in life are as high as ours. So why would it? Why does it need to be in the constitution? The constitution yeah. is permanent. Yeah, absolutely. And if you go to stereotype Aboriginal people, I don't think it's a good idea. But we are. Why do we stereotype them by something other than being sort of poor and useless? Let's stereotype them, for instance, as being damn good football players. Well, actually, I've got to say, the I'm really disappointed with our most successful um, footy players. I noticed um, Jonathan Thurston. I think it was mm. uh, absolute legend in rugby league. Eddie Betts in the AFL, all of these really successful and so deeply admired Aboriginal sportsmen have come out in favour of, of the yes case. Well, they didn't need it. What? what? Yeah, yeah. In their, in their defence, I mean, we don't pay them as sort of deep thinkers, do we? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you're rather sort of, you know, it's like saying I'm rather disappointed with the way Fred Paul plays football. You know? Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I'm not a deep thinker either. So anyway, <laughs> but uh, no, you're right. And I think you've, uh, you might have touched on uh, one of the, one of, one of the uh, shortcomings of Australian culture, I'd have to say, Nick, is that uh, we revere our sports people so highly that uh, we we consult them for cons- for changes to our constitution. Yeah, it's like taking taking them outside. You know, anything that they're not skilled at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I'm rather right. like <laughs> yeah. It's you know, it's rather like a podcast interview I heard with John Cleese recently, and um, I was looking forward to this. John Cleese is a very funny man, but. And dear old John Anderson's interview and tried to be serious. And you realise when it gets down to serious topics like economics, for instance, John Cleese is an absolute moron. <laughs> well, there you go. John, if you're listening, we still think you're funny. Oh, yes. Yeah. It doesn't detract yeah. from anything you've ever did that was hilarious. <laughs> okay, so let's go to an interview Daisy Cousins did 
with Sydney businessman Matt Kamensuli, who is often referred to as, quote, the bloke who sued Scott Morrison, you may recall, Nick. Um, that was over pre-selection processes in the Liberal Party in 2022, which Kamenzuli lost, by the way, mm. but he retains his very strong feelings about the party. Let's have a listen to that. The Liberal Party is in a lot of trouble at the moment. They're having trouble winning office. I mean, the only state or territory to have the Liberals in power at the moment is Tasmania, and they're also having trouble energising their base. What exactly is the crux of the problem here? Uh, the, the, the problem's sort of many-fold, but the, to me, the key, the core, the biggest problem in amongst all of the other challenges the party has is that there are way too many vested interest groups, lobbyists, and, and people that don't put Australia or the public first, but rather their own best and personal interests. There's way too much transactionalism happening internally within the party. There are, there are just too many people that are, are trying to get commercial outcomes, I think, through their involvement with the party. And more than that even, um, just sometimes people are interested only in power for power's sake. And, and, and I think, you know, the Australian public is, is, is starting to see through that. I think we as, as, uh, as, as liberal-minded people are starting to become very frustrated by it. And I think we're getting very close to the game being over, to be perfectly frank. Oh, Nick. <laughs> Fighting words. Well, they are indeed, and because he's, you know, he's, what 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 he's just described is uh, is basically politics as normal, right? You know, <laughs> oh, the, the Nick, no, interest. I can't uh, say but, that. But, but go on, carry one on. Hopes that from time to time, some politicians, liberal politicians, rise above that, as they do on occasions. Uh, uh, but that's the normal situation by which politicians, <laughs> the vested interests, and you know, cowardice, coward, lack of courage, all those things. But I think um, Daisy said, well, then they're, they're failing to energise the base. Actually, it's a, it's a grassroots party. The base is there to energise the party, not the other way around. And, and, oh, and that's a very good point. One of the big problems is that the, the structures of the party means that the base just get, don't get listened to and it's, it, it becomes a sort of factional power game uh, because, you know, you and I know there's a lot of really smart, Energetic liberals, full of ideas from the, uh, off, you know, including a lot of young people, mm. and I just don't think they're using that resource at all. They just well, let's just segue brain. into those young people for a second. You were at an event last night at mm. for the Menzies Research Centre where John Anderson spoke to a lot of young people. Tell me what happened. Yeah, Fre Freya Leach is uh, the new uh, director of youth of youth policy at the Menzies Research Centre, and. Uh, I think many people know Freya. She's on Q&A on Monday, actually, <laughs> if you want to see her in action. She, she's very, uh, very smart. She's just 21, very smart, um, uh, argues well, uh, you know, can, can make a real good case. And it, it's in people like Freya, and she's not the only one by a long way, that you can see the future, I think, um, of, of the party if, if they're given the opportunity to shine. You know, they, they are bravely standing up against all the work. Yeah. Nonsense, well, I mean, yeah. a good example of that uh, and a more prominent one would be Moira Deeming. Mm. She's she's quite young. I don't know what her age is, but she couldn't be past 40, uh, I, I guess, um, or around that age. Um, but uh, she's obviously, as listeners would probably know, um, she's been excluded from the uh, parliamentary Liberal Parliamentary Party uh, in Victoria, she's a member of the upper house there. She was voted in as a member of the Liberal Party. She's still a member of the Liberal Party, but her leader, John Pesuto, won't allow her into the party room because uh, she was uh, inadvertently associated with some 
some dodgy people who attended a rally that she spoke at in March uh, about women's rights. Now, uh, that, all that, is a lead up to the fact that wherever Moira goes, she is an absolute rock star. Mm. Uh, The liberal grassroots rank and file absolutely love her. And so what is it about the structure of the party that's, that, that allows her to be excluded, Nick, uh, yet she's probably the most popular liberal Victoria, po- I, Victorian politician? I think in her case it's just having a, a weak leader unable to do his job. I mean, okay, fair enough, he might find some of the members of his team are, you know, difficult to get on with or whatever it is, but that's what you deal with. That's what you deal with, as a, you know, as a boss of any organisation, as your former boss, Fred, you just deal with what's handed up. You know, but that's the point. That I think it's as simple as that. It's a failure of leadership because in the end, uh, the other point, I guess, is that the party inevitably, both parties, but uh, Liberal Party too, can get removed from the real world, you know, because they're in that sheltered environment of political of parliament and all this, this sort of bubble unless politicians really work hard of it, they can lose touch with actually what's real on the ground. And and the, and the, the issue at stake here, of course, is a simple one. What is a woman? And yeah. um, it, it's, uh, it seems there's less than 100% clarity on that question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's uh, a very uh, perplexing one these some. days. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no, but the, the other, the thing that um, uh, Matt Kamenzuli uh, was uh, alluding to in that statement probably harkens back to Tony Abbott's uh, Warringah proposal and his attempts to reform the party so that the rank and file, their wishes could not be overridden. And that was, of course, the subject of Matt Kamenzuli's uh, lawsuit against Scott Morrison, the way the the leadership and the party um, uh, administrators were able to just parachute people into particular pre-selections uh, without, against the wishes of the, uh, or without consulting, the rank and file. Now, w- I'm, what I'm getting at, Nick, is that there are some structural problems here, aren't there? Yeah, but there's solutions too, because that, that reform, although it was a, a long way short of perfect, actually uh, has been successful in some cases. I mean, notably in the pre-selection of your friend of mine, Tim James's uh, yep. seat. There's no way known Tim would have got up under the old factional system. Uh, in fact, he definitely wouldn't. It would have been a st- stitch up between the two factional warlords and they would have demanded there was a woman because that's, yeah. you know, the yeah. sort of belatedly the obsession of the time. But no, Tim got up but just by sheer legwork and you, you and I know how, yeah. how capable he is of putting, his, you know, working yes. hard and putting his mind to it, going around every member of that election panel and, and talking to them and then going back to them and making sure they came on the day. But he overcame the system. So it, it, it is, reform is possible is what I'd say. Um, well, that's true. We shouldn't give up on yeah. it. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, the other aspect of this, though, is that this, those structural problems have enabled lobbyists to take advantage of how much you can profit from being an MP. If you become... You know, if, if you enter Parliament as uh, sort of indebted to the favours of, of certain factions, then, you know, democracy becomes uh, secondary, shall we say, to your and your factions' transactional interest. That's what, that were the words that uh, Matt used. Yeah, and look, he's, you know, we, we know he's talking about and he's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah, and this this is one of the, the sad and tragic 
things about the Liberal Party that's enabled itself to get factionalised in the way that Labor did. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and it's not principally, I don't think it's a faction, it's not factionalised. If, if they were split on the on ideas, fine. But I think the ideas are only the, you know, when, when one says we're the moderates and the others say we're the conservatives, they're just... Badges, I think they put on themselves to sort of sometimes just to yeah. Well, let's be frank. Themselves. The moderates are there to capitalise on you know um, subsidies for you know net zero policies and you know making everything go green. I mean that's yeah that seems to be where they're uh, where they're heading. Oh, well, look, Matt, Matt Kamenzuli wasn't all blind criticism. He did offer some advice, and it was it was pretty old fashioned. But you uh, but it's it's worth listening to. Let's have a listen. I think the Menzies we believe statement speaks exactly to the majority of Australians. And I believe that the Liberal Party needs to go back, dust that statement off and read it and get very acquainted with it. Because if they stick inside of that narrow band, it's pretty, I suppose it's broad enough, but it's certainly a, a fairly narrow band when it comes to the rules around how big the individual needs to get and how important it is that that aspiration is, is not only encouraged, but it's, it's fanned like a, like, a, like a small flame into a raging fire. Well, those we believe statements are really very simple and fundamental, uh, and I've printed out them, I'll print them out here, Nick, I'll just read off the first few, there's 17 of them, but well, we- Go for the first one and then tell me whether this applies today. (laughs) Just read it. We believe in the crown. And carry on. Okay. We believe in Australia. We believe in the individual. We believe in the rule of law. We believe in the spirit of the volunteer. We believe that rights connote duties. And I'll go to the seventh one. We believe that it is the supreme function of government to assist in the development of personality. And just one more, we believe in liberty. They're the yeah, first but you're eight. you're just skimming over the top. I mean, if you go to that we believe in the crown as the centre of national unity, I'd love to think that was the case, but I just don't think that's achievable in this day and age. I think it's quite – I certainly believe we should stay a monarchy, but – you couldn't say that the crown is what draws us together as a central national unity, as they said in 1953, which was shortly after the Queen's sensational tour of Britain as a young monarch. No, so that's true. I, I, well, I think Kamenzuli is, is is right in that the sentiments are right, but I think we des- desperately need to go through those statements and add a couple more, actually, that are missing. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, it's but, not, but, it's, we can't go back to those times. Well, we can't. I'd I'd argue that a lot of these are are, are quite fundamental principles. I mean, we believe in liberty. We believe that rights connote duties. Spirit of the volunteer. This is all John Stuart Mill. We're actually going to mention John Stuart Mill later on. But let me just make. Is he going to be on the show? Oh yeah, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Through the wonders of artificial intelligence, wouldn't it? Yeah, this would be the highlight of my interviewing (laughs) career. (laughs) And after and coming up after the break, Jesus Christ. uh, no, but let's just return to we believe in the crown. Now, that that may not exist now. That may be an impossible uh, objective now. But I would argue that the the um, demise of that sentiment has has given rise to the voice. I mean, the crown represented the the sort of fundamental enlightenment principles that on which the country was faded uh, mm. uh, founded. 
And uh, as a result of those principles being somewhat diminished in value, we now find ourselves proposing uh, a change to our constitution to divide us by race. Now, the Crown never represented anything like that, did it, Nick? No, and and uh, yeah, that's right. The, the Crown, the, the, uh, the crown as a centre of national unity is something we should aspire to, but certainly the Crown as, as, as our head of state, the Crown, no, not a particular queen, king or queen, uh, I think that's that's very important. Um, I just think that if you're going to be want to, it, 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 it's it's undeniable that it's not a unifying factor anymore. That's all I'd say. On well, that. true. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with but that. I, I, but I think the sentiment and the, one of the bits I think is not missing there is a sort of description of what a citizen is. Yeah. You know, because that's with the voice that's become clear, right? We're yep. all equal citizens, whether you've been here five minutes or your ancestors came sixty thousand years ago. There's no difference between us. And, and that's what I think you're getting out there, and that's that's essential to hold us together. And as soon as you say, well, one group are different simply by dint of their race, then you, you know, you get uh, – you, Australians get very uncomfortable with that, and I think yeah. that's the principal objection to the voice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and the, the sort of um, the, the lowering of our – seeing uh, that we see ourselves less as citizens um, – is is just a part of it, it, a part of this sort of ongoing zeitgeist where we don't see ourselves as kind of beholden to each other. We just see mm. ourselves as subjects of the government that will keep us safe. That's not citizenship. No, absolutely not. The government's subject of us, isn't it? I mean, the, go- the government is there to serve us, not the Indeed. other way around. We will get to that. Wait till we wait till we play some Alan Jones later on. Now, Nick, one of the easiest political targets this week was. Qantas. This company mm. is completely on the nose. Its planes never take its planes never take off on time if they take off at all. It has the highest rate of complaints from customers in any from any for any co- uh, company in the nation. It has signed up to the government's yes vote, which looks conspicuously conspicuously like a quid pro quo for the government blocking Qatar Airways from increasing its presence in Australia. And now it's been caught selling tickets on flights that were already cancelled and is sitting on half a billion dollars worth of unused airfares. So, Nick, do you know, (laughs) this is a trick question, Nick, who led the charge against all this corporate incompetence? No, you tell me. It was Labor Senator Tony Sheldon, former leader of the Transport Workers Ah, Union. Ah, yes. Now, Nick... Where were the Liberals? I mean, mm. this is the biggest free kick of the week. Where were they? Indeed, yeah. No, I haven't got an answer to that. I would have no. thought they should have done. Good on Tony Sheldon, actually, yeah, for doing it. absolutely, but, sticking up for the little guy. I mean... But you're that, sticking up for the people, right? Because yeah. people are just sick of this thing. And the, yeah. And, you know, it's compounded by the, the fact... I mean, you know, they, they, they can't... They lose your luggage, they... <laughs> <laughs> put you on flights that don't exist, etc., etc., etc. Oh, and it's they all right you, because they, they're virtuous. Because when no. you land, you get the welcome to come. That's right. As I've pointed out once or twice before, Nick, how can you how can you uh, welcome people to country and then say I still call Australia home? It's got to be one or the other. That's right. I think um, well, Albo's got to answer this too. But I think Barn- uh, uh, I was going to say Barnaby Joyce, Alan <laughs> Joyce, the CEO's. Decision because it must have been 
brought to him to, to put Albo's son in the chairman's lounge, oh, giving that yeah. great perk yeah. of being waited on hand and foot with caviar and French champagne. I think that's outrageous. It that is. It just, just I mean, looks like pure uh, influence buying. Well, I'll go so far as to say it looks like corruption to me. Mm. You know, I mean, where are all our, our, our corruption bodies? You know, we pay hundreds of million dollars for these things. It, there's a clear case here of, well, you call it influence peddling. I mean, whatever they want to define it as. But, I mean, the ordinary bloke in the street is just going, well, you know, this is just a ripoff and I'm being left out and next time I book a flight on Qantas, it's not even going to take off. It's, uh, it's infuriating. Now, uh, <laughs> let's have a look at some of the fundamental changes going on in Western liberal democracies these days. I touched on this in um, my show on Monday. Let's have a listen. I think you all know that I've always felt the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. That was when the worst the government could do was impose conflicting or haphazard policies that inadvertently caused you some degree of hardship. But not anymore. As we now know, even in Australia, the government has evolved from a bumbling bureaucracy to a deliberately destructive force, actively tearing down the institutions and principles upon which our freedom and prosperity are based so it can replace it with, well, it hasn't told us that bit yet. If Reagan were President of the United States or Prime Minister of Australia today, he would need to rewrite his famous catchphrase too. I'm from the government and I'm here to deliberately make things worse. <laughs> well, Nick, I followed that up with a grab from the 1966 Australian movie, They're a Weird Mob. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Yeah, in which, a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> it's very cheesy. But anyway, in which recent Italian migrant Nino Colotta is able to quickly find work, a fiancé and a block of land overlooking Sydney Harbour, in which to raise a family. Now, it's a very cheesy film, mm. Nick, but my point is that it is a relic of a much more optimistic age. So much has changed since those halcyon days, I think, especially in the area of housing. Mm. I mean, here's a, here's a, uh, it's a fictional story, of course, and it, and it is, you know, sort of um, it has a saccharine amount of optimism about it, but it's... Even a recent Italian migrant can aspire to have a little piece of Australia, even overlooking Sydney Harbour, within a couple of years of moving here. Now, migration is still central to our housing issue, Nick, but it's the opposite, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's a very interesting point. Of course it is, yeah. I mean, I think we've commented on this before that um, if you were to, to look at the, uh, the number of migrants we've had in the last year, 300,000? 300, yeah, 400,000, yeah. and you divide that by 2.5, that's the average number of people in the home, you, you basically take up the entire new housing stock, so yep. just with migrants. So it's a real it's a real issue. But I think that point about optimism is, is, is really true. I mean, obviously, it's harder to be optimistic if housing is going to cost a, a much larger proportion of your income than it would have done back then. But But I think what's missing from young people particularly is that, and you see it in surveys, is the expectation that one day they might buy a home. 
you know, it's going to be hard, it might take five years, might take ten years to save up, but they can do it one day because it's worthwhile, have that asset behind them. I, I, I think that's what's gone and I think mm. it, there's no government policy that's going to fix this, but I think a government policy that gave people the optimism that they could save and that they would be treated sympathetically by the government in terms of, you know, say, for instance, allowing them to use some superannuation or taxation or some other arrangement, the government's actually going to help them do this as far as it can without giving out direct handouts, obviously. I think that that would... That would be a great thing for young people. Yeah, I think we've moved into an era in which it's in the government's interest now for people not to own homes. I mean, the government, the federal government is making a big song and dance about how it just can't wait to build tens of thousands of homes of its own volition, which it's never had to, never needed to do ever since Federation or, oh, sorry, Federation, ever since the 1788 even before, <laughs> before then, at least uh, you know our indigenous brothers and sisters were able to uh, build um, lean-tos without the help of some sort of federal government. But my point, Nick, is that we have moved into this phase where a lot, a large section of the Australian community thinks that, or is convinced that it is the government's job to provide housing and the government is happy to step up and do that because it creates work for bureaucrats and politicians. Now, am I wrong? Is this a deliberate development in Australian culture and economy? I, I don't know how deliberate it is, but certainly um, I heard Emily Dye the other day. You know, she's a, um, a young American economist who's based here. She's pretty, pretty smart and she said she thought we should stop treating housing as an investment and just to treat it as a product, you know, something you use. I, I I don't agree with that because, I mean, actually what housing does is it's a dual function. It's not just a roof over your head, a secure roof over your head. You can't be evicted. You can't evict yourself from your own home, right? <laughs> but it, not just that, but, of course, it is a it is an investment. And, mm. and um, you know, at our age, you go and see your financial advisor and say, what should I do for retirement, which is like next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they say... Well, if you paid off your own home, like if you paid off your own home, that's the number one thing they say because then it's a bedrock sort of financial mm. asset. asset yeah, and, and as Robert Menzies said, Robert Menzies was the great housing ownership prime minister of, of all of Australian history, really. He encouraged it more than anyone or enabled it more than anyone. He referred to them as homes spiritual. Mm. Well, they have, definitely have that quality. So, yeah, yeah I, and uh, the Liberals... They are, they are concerned about this. They are looking at it, but they need to look at it very hard because it's a fundamental plank of liberal philosophy. There's an area west of in Western Sydney called the Cumberland Plains, mm. and there are Walker Group is one of them. Uh, I, can't, I can't recall off the top of my head the, the other big development co companies, but they are champing at the bit to turn shovels on, on the land out there, and we are talking tens of thousands of homes over hundreds of thousands of hectares. And the only thing getting in the way is is every level of government uh, over, you know, mostly over koalas, actually. Yeah, and then you um, add, yeah there's all that ridiculous, um, they change the regulations so that you, if you, if you, you have to special if you put up a new home, you have to specify what trees are going to grow in that garden, yeah. and they'll yeah, come exactly. around and check and find. Yep. Now that's ridiculous, but there's yep. more on top of that. You know, in terms of government not being very helpful with infrastructure charges, for instance. You know, sort of um, if you if you if you've got a 
the, the first house in the line gets charged the full cost of the plumbing and the electricity. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, this is ridiculous. Surely yeah. it's not beyond their wit to sort that out in a fair well, way. Well, every time I hear a politician say they're going to fix the housing crisis, I just, I, I just cringe because the only way they're going to fix it is just to get the hell out of the way. Yeah, yeah. Now, no, just segue from that, Nick, um, that sort of fundamental change, keeping sort of maintaining that theme of fundamental changes in our culture and our politics. Alan Jones discussed some of these profound changes in his show. Let's have a listen to this. Only last month, a landmark ruling in America highlighted the extent to which the US government has been pressuring social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook to remove viewpoints it didn't like. The judge, Terry Doughty, said the allegation entailed, quote, arguably the most massive attack against free speech in the United States history. And here we are having thrust upon us a misinformation and disinformation bill. Governments are exempt. But think coronavirus and climate change and governments are the greatest promoters of misinformation and disinformation. This is government, not as the servant it should be, but the master of our thinking. John Stuart Mill was a British philosopher, a political economist, a civil servant, and an influential thinker in the history of liberalism. He called freedom of thought and discussion, quote, the most fundamental doctrine of a free society. Well, this legislation on misinformation and disinformation is a serious threat to our democracy. John Stuart Mill reminded us over 150 years ago, quote, do not barter away your freedom of thought and the liberty of expressing and publishing opinions, which is practically inseparable from it. You just think, the voice, climate change, coronavirus, you name it, haven't we already bartered away our freedom of thought? which John Stuart Mill called the fundamental doctrine of a free society. There's a reason we're being silenced. Big Brother doesn't like what we're saying. I say bugger Big Brother. Oh, Nick. <laughs> you bugger know, Big Brother. Alan's detractors know him as a shock jock mm. uh, or someone who is so across detail that he can bamboozle any politician in the country. Mm. But what most people don't know about Alan is that he's, you know, he'd, he'd probably cringe if, I, if he heard me say this, but he's a deep thinker. Like mm. quoting John Stuart Mill, who's, who else is quoting John Stuart Mill these days mm. um, at a time when our freedoms are in fact uh, being um, compromised and, you know, and in Alan's inimitable way, he says, "Well, just bugger big brother." Well, they're not—they're not teaching that at school, are they? Not, no, well, not most schools. I mean, there are a, a, a precious few schools where they do take uh, Western uh, tradition in, seriously. But the importance of understanding people like John Stuart Mill is you understand not just instinctively we want to be free, but why it's good for a society to be free. And and one of the big things Mill's points out is that. Is you correct your mistakes that way? You know, if 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 you're having a free conversation, then poor ideas and uh, are defeated by strong argument, and vice versa. And when you go into an argument, you know, who knows? We might be absolutely certain of our position, but if somebody else puts up, if we're prepared to listen to an alternative argument, then we're doing ourselves and the human race a great favour. And, and another point he makes is that the mistakes you make are never confined, the cost of those mistakes mm. are never confined to just you. John Stuart yeah. Mill was very 
specific about the fact that people who make mistakes affect the people around them. So it's in mm. everyone's interest not only to be free but to be smart as well. And that actually brings me back to, you know, Menzies, we believe. What is it? We believe that rights connote duties. Yeah. I mean. Simple. Very simple. So. Um, the, yeah, the, you say, you know, that's right. Your mistakes or the mistakes one person makes costs another person. Nowhere is that more true, of course, than in the realm of government, you know? Yes, yeah. You, now, you, you've detected, speaking of freedom of speech, you've picked up some... Uh, some interesting language coming out of AEMO. Yeah, you? freedom of speech. I mean, AEMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator, they torture the English language in a cruel and unusual <laughs> fashion in all their reports. It's very hard to pick up uh, what they're saying. Uh, they had a report out this week, the uh, Statement of Opportunities. I mean, that in itself, a Statement of Opportunities. <laughs> How exciting this is. All great new future ahead, great possibilities lie ahead for this country. Statement of Opportunities just saying where they're short of electricity, right, because actually the problem statement. But th this is this is one I, I picked up, Fred. Uh, they say um, they say that uh, they, they warn that there'll be an increasing number of generator unplanned, un, uh, generator unplanned outage rates <laughs> a generator unplanned outage rate that's a blackout to you it's a blackout um they, they go <laughs> as distinct from a generator planned outage is it yeah they go on to say they talk about a, a rising uh, amount of unserved energy or use <laughs> And that's, that's that's ice cream melting in a freezer. That's unserved energy. <laughs> that's right, or unserved energy. It's like, an, you know, if you go to a restaurant and order your dinner and it doesn't come, that's an unserved <laughs> dinner. But unserved energy, and it, it goes on to define it, unserved energy represents energy that cannot be supplied to consumers when <laughs> demand exceeds supply. And use, they call it. Unserved energy, use at USE. And it says that um, uh, use can lead to Involuntary load shedding. <laughs> that's a blackout. <laughs> that's, that's someone standing in the dark flicking a switch on and off and yeah. nothing happening. So use, unserved energy, is when they can't serve you energy. In other words, use is completely useless. <laughs> uh, we should have got John Cleese in to, uh, to analyse this. It's full of this stuff. Hilarious. I think they think that if they put it in this convoluted language then people will not understand the gravity of what they're saying which is that we don't we don't have enough electricity generation capacity to keep the lights on well that was the other big story of the week nick and i've got to get your opinion on this we are facing blackouts in what is it, new south wales victoria and south australia this this summer Mm, what's, it, what's... No, not blackouts, involuntary load shedding <laughs> <laughs> melting ice cream involuntary melting ice cream <laughs> What's yeah, well, your take on it, Nick? What, where, how it, did we get here and what do we do? They Well, quite simple. We closed power stations. We lost a, a gigawatt out in New South Wales earlier this year in March, I think April, when Liddell closed us. That was a gigawatt of power that was being reliably de delivered by coal. Now, you look on the, on, the, on the National Energy Market website every day, as I'm as being an energy tragic, I do, and New South Wales is, guess what, one gigawatt short of electricity. <laughs> it's importing one gigawatt. And it was just this fantasy that you can replace all this with, you know, wind and solar. Yeah. Do you know today in, in South Australia, because I looked at these figures, they've got two and a half or, or two, sorry, 2.2 gigawatts of wind power. That's that's more than enough to power a, townies, a tiny state of South Australia 
and have some to spare if it was actually producing 2.2 gigawatts. But yeah. of course it's not. Today it's producing about 2% of that. And they're sucking 2%. 2% of that. It's a wind drought in South Australia. And so a quarter of their energy is coming from Victoria where they make energy with brown coal. So the and, and that, dream that, is over. That, um, that energy is being transported across large swathes of Australian bushland or farming land, I should say, uh, and I spoke to, I, I can recommend an interview that I did during the week with the Institute of Public Affairs, Dan Wild, who did a road trip through uh, the areas north e- northwest of Ballarat, where these high tr- high tension wires are being um, forcibly steamrolled across some, um, farmland that's been farmed by the same families for generations. That is uh, inexcusable and unnecessary. Our colleague Alan Jones delivered a speech at a, at a freedom of speech uh, conference in Brisbane on the weekend, and one of the points he made was that he, he was um, adamant and critical about this all this new talk of nuclear. He said, you know, nuclear is going to take five, ten years to really get started. What we really need is more coal. It's just mm. simple, as simple as that. We've got the coal. We know how to build the the, uh, the generators. We need to get started on it. But, um, well, but you know, there's this prediction we're told that there are going to be more wildfires, more bushfires because of climate change. Actually, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because a large number of bushfires start with collapse with collapsing transmission lines. Look at Hawaii just recently. Indeed, the, yes. One of the worst bushfires I can ever remember yep. started by falling transmission yep. lines. And uh, that's exactly what uh, Dan Wild from the IPA told me. He spoke to the fireys uh, in this area northwest of Ballarat, and that's exactly what they said. These things will start fires and we can't put them out. No, and if climate is changing, then we can expect more of that, can we? I mean, certainly <laughs> if climate is changing, we're going to get, for instance, lots of large hailstorms you see what a hailstorm does to a solar panel? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pummels the buttery out of it, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what we can look forward to. So, Indeed. Uh, yeah. Well, let's get back to federal politics. This is a nice way of, of, of summing up the show, and it's another fine spray from our colleague Alan Jones. Let's have a listen to this one. Federal MPs, what have they done except to get us into all this trouble? Think of the debt. Sponsors of the coronavirus fiasco. But federal MPs are going to get a 4% pay rise, their biggest in a decade. In this climate, cost of living. People like Scott Morrison sitting on their backside doing nothing, and they'll now get 226000 a year. Base salary, other stuff on top of that. I don't mind the Prime Minister getting 600000 a year if he delivers for a better Australia. But it's not happening. I mean, where would Chalmers get $420,000 a year in the private sector? Come on. Most of the reporting, <laughs> come on, most of the reporting of this, Nick, uh, in other media outlets, quoted the remuneration tribunal saying that this was actually a conservative pay rise. And, uh, you know, the whole thing kind of sailed through without much controversy until it passed over Alan Jones's <laughs> desk. <laughs> But I think um, well, I it, think is, it is less than the increase in the minimum wage, of course. Well, less yeah, than yeah. But uh, Alan's point is, well, they don't deserve a pay rise because they've got us in all this mess. Exactly, and I don't think there's too many people in the private sector that are looking forward to pay rises of that Indeed. dimension. You know, in, in and in the because in the private sector you're paid by performance. Yeah. Whereas if you're anything to do with the government, you're not. And and, and I think that you know it's going to really rankle people. Right? Yeah. 
I mean, personally, I think we should pay our politicians a lot more and then they won't be tempted to leave Parliament and go lobbying for some defence company and whatever, you know. I mean, uh, but but um, that's another argument. But on, on this question, Alan's spot on. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, well, let's finish the week with the uh, one of the most controversial incidents of the past couple of weeks, Nick. It's the moment when uh, the Spanish national women's soccer coach, <laughs> Luis Rubiales, planted on the lips of player Jennifer Hermoso a big kiss after they won the uh, World Cup. Now, what did you make of that, Nick? Because this is a story that won't go away. On the surface, it was a pretty crass and obnoxious thing to do, wasn't it? We don't know what she said to him beforehand. I mean, she might have said... Besame, besame mucho. You know, we don't know. You remember that song? That was a glorious no, song. No. Kiss me, kiss me a lot. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, it's just never okay, is it? I don't think so. You We're know. going to disagree on this one, Nick, because I think none of, none of us has spent four years training for a sporting event and then in the exuberance of that four years culminating in the ultimate success, none of us know what that's like. And I said, I'd, you know, the Spanish are known for being... But he know, wasn't playing the sport. Well, he was the coach. They've been working mm-hmm. together for years to achieve this goal and in this, in this you know, crazy uh, exuberant moment. He's Spanish, remember. I mean, they're known for being passionate. <laughs> you know, this is the country from which the flamenco and, and you know, great, great sort of passionate... Uh, um, art uh, arises. But out of all the things you'd be tempted to do in such circumstances, do you think you'd really want to give a player a tonguey? Well, it wasn't a tonguey, Nick. How would you know? <laughs> well, We don't know where it stopped. Well, let me, let me enlighten you with the quote that was attributed to Jennifer Hermoso the following day, right? Quote, It was a totally spontaneous mutual gesture because of the immense joy that winning a World Cup brings. The President and I have a great relationship. His behaviour with all of us has been outstanding and it was a natural gesture of affection and gratitude. End of quote. Now, Sounds that like was... one of those hostage videos to <laughs> me. <laughs> no, the hostage thing comes when the feminists and the media get, ha- get hold of her and she changes her mind. That's that's the feminist uh, sort of you know statement. Oh, the sort of the hostage statement, if you ask me. She yeah. changed her mind because it, you know, the, the the powers that be couldn't let this go without turning it into a controversy that bordered on uh, some sort of uh, um, allegation that he was making a. He uh, grabbed her head. Yeah. Well. I mean, it's okay just to grab Spanish, a woman's mate. head and force her lips against yours. That's, I repeat, I, I return you, to my original point. You're standing up for a Spaniard, Spaniard who grabs somebody's <laughs> head and pushes against her own lips. No, well, she, uh, initially she didn't mind. And Is that I, what you're doing I, in the re- world of surfing? <laughs> <laughs> the things I've seen on the pro surfing tour, mate, they make that seem like... Uh, I'm glad there's a good two metres between you and me <laughs> on this table, Fred. I just want to repeat, neither you nor I have ever won a uh, sporting event after four years of uh, training towards it, so we don't know what sort what sort of exuberance or what sort of behaviour that exuberance might uh, entail. Anyway, that's it's a nice It's a fascinating dis- debating point. I love them when they come up, these things. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about yeah. 
etiquette. <laughs> did you uh, did you have a lesson of the week, and then we'll wrap it up? Well, I did. That is contrary to I think everything that I thought and everything I'd read about the Westminster system. The Prime Minister is no longer responsible for all the decisions his government takes. Uh, it came up in the decision to stop Qatar Airlines, which has been very controversial. Qatar wanted to put twenty two extra flights into into uh, Australia, which would have helped bring down prices, very good for consumers, and they were blocked by the government inexplicably in favour of the airline who've just made the Prime Minister's son a member yeah. of their chairman's land. It's, it's, it's appalling. But when asked about it this week, the Prime Minister said, well, I didn't know about it. I didn't make that decision. It was a transport minister. Oh. Well, I, if, if the transport minister did not bring a, a matter as important as that to Cabinet, she's responsible and needs to be held accountable for that. But in any case, the principle is the Prime Minister, the buck stops there. Obviously, there's there's no buck stopping at the Prime Minister's no, desk. No, that's right. The buck stops with the Prime Minister. It's famous. Who, which US president used to have that on his desk? I should know that. Yeah, I but should But it's, it's a true, true it thing. It is. Right? It's absolutely. It's part of the responsibility of the job. But, I mean, he's just emulating what happened right throughout COVID. No politician took responsibility for closing down entire communities or forcing experimental medications on the population because they were just taking advice from medical experts, you know. Well, it's part of that trend, isn't it? The it politicians is, yeah. will, are increasingly reluctant to accept responsibility for the decisions they make. Yeah. My lesson of the week is to surf more, Nick. <laughs> I'm over it, i got to say. I, re I really am. I mean, there's so much... There's just so much to despair about at the moment. I, I tried to make the theme of this week's show that, you know, a reminder that we are witnessing fundamental shifts in our society and if we don't reverse them, things are going to get pretty ugly. But uh, if you want me, I'm just going to be out in the water. I've had enough. Well, let's challenge. Just make next week's show the happy news, good news. Let's story. do that. Yes, and that's a good note on which to end. Nick Cater, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, my name's Fred Paul. This is Parting Shots from ADH. TV, and we will see you next week. Have a good weekend.